everyone. This is Ari in the air. Hope you're doing good. Glad you're here. Welcome back to the show. Just want to remind you that if you are a regular listener of this show, I would love your support. That is through subscribing and clicking and doing all the algorithmic hacks things that make me pop up on the bloobity blues and the hoobity hoos. But also, if you could spare some money so that I could use it as a tool for my own creation here. That's paypal.me slash in the air. You know what I mean? So without further ado, I want to drop you into a conversation I had with my friend, Dr. Greg Enriquez. As you remember, Dr. Greg is a professor of psychology. He runs the doctorate program at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And he is a legendary psychologist, the author of The New Unified Theory of Psychology. He's a very nice, kind, gentle person. He's a clinician and he's a, uh, he's a person that I'm really glad to have as a mentor in my life. And this, uh, especially in this podcast, he's very versed. And as you have probably heard in this podcast and are about to hear, He's got a lot of very deep insights and uh, a lot of different lenses to look at these kind of things. Uh, in this episode, we're essentially looking at the transformational power of risk as it applies to paragliding. But I think that if you can uh, let your gaze go soft, you will see that paragliding is merely one analogy. It's one metaphor that we can use for the transformational power that risk has in our lives. It's true in relationship. It's true in driving our cars it's true in taking business risk and taking commitment risks and it's basically true for you in myriad aspects of your life um just for me it's particularly salient to talk about it in paragliding because i've been making a lot of philosophy of paragliding videos on my youtube channel that's airy in the air it's pretty paraglide specific but is also philosophical so Without further ado, here's my talk with Dr. Greg Enriquez. into a paraglide <laughs> i would love to take you paragliding you should totally do that you should come out to oregon we'd love to have you i have a whole i've got, I've got to take here. care of my shadow shit first man <laughs> oh yeah so you watched the video i did indeed I did. what'd you think of that um i thought it was a very important i mean you're making a very very important point and i you know we can get into how i understand this theoretically how i understand it personally how i understand it from a clinical perspective but yeah. i'll simply say you're making a very important point, friend. Okay. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So I just want to, I'll kind of, let's drop in here. I would love to kind of tell you where I'm at and what I'm trying to do with this and maybe how I kind of came to it. And then I would love to get your insight on a number of these things of mm -hmm. which you have some important insights. And the blog post that you sent me about the core need 
is something that I want to include and transcend on this particular conversation as we dive into essentially why we paraglide, why people take risk, what the transformational power of risk is, uh-huh. and how to hold this, how to be in right relationship with this. Exactly. Because essentially, I learned to paraglide five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. I've been all over the world. But this new sport was nested on top of me being a professional highliner. And that was built on top of me being a professional skier, right. which was built on top of me being a kid who could do a backflip off of a curb and was built on top of me being a young kid who would literally jump off of cliffs and hug his arms around trees to catch himself in trees. And I could do flips off of cliffs into water and I could build bike jumps. And I used to line the kids up in my neighborhood and they would lay down on their backs and I would jump over them with a bike. (laughs) <laughs> like all this stuff, right? It's just like my whole life. People are like, oh, how'd you get into paraglider? I was like, I was never not a paraglider. I just right. didn't have the glider. Right. <laughs> so so it's like cool. I've kind of been doing this for a long time. And as I've as I've grown older, I've started down this path of healing myself, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with my relationship with my parents, dealing with my relationship to my peers, to my partners, to my work to my money to my worthiness amen to all of this shit and it's made me see some of the reasons that i paraglide other than i love it other than it's so fun of like you know the other night like at this point i'm a expert paraglider and Mm -hmm. the other night there's a group of students on launch Mm -hmm. and i can just feel like it's so salient for me, the like, the competence hierarchy is so salient for me. Like there's beginners around and it's so salient for me. Like I feel that viscerally and I feel yep. it like, I feel its effect on my behavior that I want mm. to swoop and I want to top land and I want to like, mm. and I, I, luckily at this point in my life, I can kind of see that. Mm. I can mm-hmm. kind of see that. Um, mm-hmm. And it also goes the other way around. Like when a profession, when I go to France and I see some of the big dogs, like some of the mm. real, like long-standing professionals, the competence hierarchy is so salient for me. Yes. Okay. Like a couple of weeks ago, I went on a big trip to Washington and flew my mm. biggest flights. I did 245 kilometers in a single flight, and I was mm. flying with my friend Evan, and he is just like one of America's best. Okay. And. That competence hierarchy is so salient for me. I'm like so keenly observant of what he's doing, where he's flying, how he's doing it. I'm just trying to soak it up, right? Right. On the other end of that with the beginners is a much more dangerous, it's a much more dangerous um, part of that Mm -hmm. hierarchy for me. And it's very real. I can like feel it and I can notice it. And Mm -hmm. I didn't always notice those things, you know, as a Mm -hmm. young skier, some of my favorite configurations were if the ski resort would build the biggest jumps on the mountain right under the chairlift. That's my, mm. that's my preferred way to go off of a huge <laughs> jump backwards is okay. in front of a, is in front of a crowd. An that's audience. A, an audience. Yeah. And you know, and, and as I've grown up, there's like, um, I have had to wrestle with and shake off this notion that I'm just a show off. 
Mm-hmm. that I only do it just to show off that I'm right. only cocky, right? Like as a kid, yep. I was just like accused of being cocky and I really like swallowed it in an unhealthy way. And, yep. and now as a, as a man, I want to be able to harness the positive part of being inspirational and yep. by participating in things that are fucking incredible. And like, mm-hmm. it is such a, it's just such a amazing fact that humans can even do this shit. It's like yep. walking across a slack line that is a mile long is just unfathomable for what humans can do. Amen. And when I see my friends do it, I'm just like humbled to pieces. Like I'm like moved to tears that I'm like, wow, what an incredible feat of humanity that we can mm-hmm. put this thing up, that we can walk it. And then to, to step onto that and to, for myself to walk across it is like, um, hmm. you know, it, it can't all come from showing off. Like that, that's no. just not, that's just not all my yep. motivations. And so, absolutely. um, one of the, one of the, the things that I'm, I'm wrestling with now is like, what are our motivations to paraglide? And especially externally, you know, the other night I watched a near fatal accident with a friend of mine who's a combat vet and he got into paragliding. I taught him how to paraglide. And, you know, one of the things that he says was there was something that came alive in me in combat that has never been alive since. And when I found paragliding, it saved my life because, you know, the, the, it's a very yes. common PTSD, quasi, of what course. is my relationship to uh, wartime? Of course. Yeah. So, and, and you know, it, it's true. That's a very salient thing. And I think a lot of us, even though we don't have PTSD or wartime combat experiences, there's something that comes alive for us. Completely. That once that comes alive, our tolerance to the level of stimulation goes kind of through the roof and it's like we're we kind of need that level of stimulation again to get that kind of aliveness out of ourselves so i was talking with my friend yesterday he's an instructor i asked him if he has taught combat vets he said he's taught a ton of combat vets Um, they have um recreational budgets and a lot of them are learning how to paraglide or fly paramotors. And he says, he's actually a pharmacist as well, lifelong pharmacist. And he says, yeah, it's, a, it's good medicine. I said, absolutely, it's good medicine. But we all know that you can abuse drugs. You can take the whole bottle. And so one of the things that I'm really inquiring right now is, how can I use paragliding as the best medicine for my soul? How can I encourage people, my community, the entire sport, mm-hmm. to, to use it as good medicine and to not snort it and to mm-hmm. not inject it intravenously? Because I have tried to inject it intravenously and the mm-hmm. high is so high. And I've also crashed my paraglider moments after. Um, so I, I've seen the dark side of all these motivations. Like I say all this stuff like being the guy that's crashed it, having... Mm-hmm ill motivations. I I have Mm -hmm. shown off and crashed. I have, Mm -hmm. you know, like all of the stuff that I warn people against Mm -hmm. is all stuff that I've done. My soapbox is very short here. (laughs) And so, you know, I, I want this to be the best medicine. And I also, you know, one point that I made to Kyle last night, the pharmacist was, I said, 
how do we encourage people if they're going to take the medicine, how do we encourage them to bring their placebo? Mm. Hmm. How do we encourage them to show up with a ripeness for the healing, right? Like if it's good medicine and it's going to feed your soul, then how do you show up as the person ready to be transformed? And how do we encourage people to maybe look at it like that? Mm-hmm. So I think I would love to hear from you how all of this kind of lands as well as uh, no pun intended. How <laughs> <laughs> would us all crash lands under a reserve parachute? Uh, I, I think we might be able to sort it out for a safe landing. We can land it right into the unified theory, I think. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And also, like, I would love to nest this inside of the core need. I think that that's um, yeah. something that's really salient for me. So, all right. All right, brother. So, yeah, let's, let's, let's break out some of the key pieces that we're going to need. Okay. To, put, to sort this out. So I think you're asking great questions, all right? Let's go to your clip. So hopefully people saw the one you sent to me, all right? Uh, and talked about sort of, well, what are the authentic motivations, all right, um, that will drive paragliding, all right? And we're gonna, I'm gonna talk to you about, about from the bottom and from the top authentic motivations, all right? And then I'm gonna talk to you about secondary or compensatory motivations, all right? All right. And we're going to sort those out. And hopefully we're going to have people, how do you get the right primary motivations, top and bottom? And how do you hold and aware of these secondary defensive motivations? Okay. Because they can lead to some blindness. So for example, are you doing it for your dad? Okay. Or can you, are you here to present, hey, I want to prove something to the audience, to the dad. I want to, I have a performance motive so that I get affirmation okay, about what I am worth, all right, that's a performance motive, okay, which is different than a core mastery motive of the experience, okay, so it's a secondary thing, all right, so let's, st- let's talk it through and help us understand what exactly it is, um, that, w- so at the basics of the, why do people, let's just start with the basics, why do people engage in risk-taking behavior, okay, risk-taking behavior is very arousing, First off, by definition, it, it activates sympathetic systems and floods the adrenal system, okay, and energizes the shit out of your mentation, meaning your, your perceptions, your sensations, all of that, okay? And there are two basic structures around that, which is the approach, excitement, and desire, and the terrified horror of avoidance, okay? Mm-hmm. So you can get active in two fundamentally different ways, mm-hmm. all right? You get active if somebody's breaking into your fucking house is going to rape and kill you. Oh, my fucking God. Okay. All right. You get active. You fall in love with somebody and they love you back. You'll get active that way. Okay. Yeah. Paragliding, as you describe that, it sounds like we're I'm like balanced right in the middle of that. That's like, I'm like, this is so awesome. Don't die. This is right. so awesome. Don't exactly. die. Well, that's the, the, we'll talk a little bit about why the arousal system starts to overlap with lots of different elements. Okay. And if you tied somebody up and were like, all right, I'm going to throw you off as a paragliding, it would be the, oh my God, I'm going to die. And this is unbelievably horrible. I have no control over it. It'd be the worst, you know, falling out of a fucking plane. Uh, you know, that'd just be horrifying. That'd be it. So, so there are key dynamics about control, about a sense of mastery, about where the line is, why there's overlap, but it's all, it's an energizing arousal. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now let's, t- let's take that and then let's talk about there's 
temperamental differences, okay, meaning people have, uh, they develop, they have biobehavioral genetic tendencies, and then they develop in certain ways as to whether or not they seek out that arousal space, okay? And it is a facet of what's called extroversion. Extroversion is this broad temperamental tendency to be socially engaged, to have positive affect, and to have sensation seeking, okay? I, I want experiences, all right? I want to, and, and then I want experiences, and do I want them to be risky? Okay, mm. so that's a temperament. It's called sensation seeking, all right? And basically what you can imagine is if you're plugged in, you need a dopamine, dopamine is a reward stimulus, okay, that activates you and tells you, hey, this is fun. It gets you oriented, it gets you desire. You get a dopamine, uh, you know, release, all right? And you're, if you have receptors that are like, yeah, bring me that shit, okay? I, I, then all of a sudden, the phenomenological experience of that is energy and desire, mm -hmm. okay? All right? And people differ tremendously on their dispositions as to how much stimulus they need to find that to be rewarding. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of people that are not sensation seekers at all that would be like, I can't even fathom why the fuck you would, anyone would ever do any of that. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to go to a party because it overloads me. Mm. <laughs> okay. All right. So at a, we're talking the basic biopsychological reward architecture. There's a dimension of sensation seeking. This is the bottom up as to whether or not people are going to find the phenomenological reward to generally be pleasant and seek more of it or be completely overloaded and be like, I fucking hate that. Does that make sense? Totally. Okay. Yeah. All right. You're so describing this, you're describing this and I'm kind of like placing myself in this hierarchy. I was like, oh mm -hmm. yeah, I like those strong stuff. I definitely mm -hmm. like the you strong like stuff. The stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Give me a double, <laughs> no ice. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, so, and then there's, then we can talk more. John Verbeke and I did a two-part series on the 11th problem of consciousness. We were talking about the higher order experiences, transcendental experiences of consciousness. Okay. Um, and life and death experiences, okay? Things that actually, that remind you whether or not you are alive. If people get in car accidents or anything that reminds people that they live on often a knife edge of life and death, okay? Will transform the self-world relationship, potentially, okay? Like, in other words, what am I? What's my purpose? Am I, how vulnerable am I? On the one hand, this can break bad and be like, oh my God, I'm fragile. I could die at any fucking minute. Yeah. Okay. It can also break good in relationship to, oh, I have a place in the cosmos and I can come to peace with that. Okay. And so all of a sudden, if you're not afraid to die, then you're not afraid to live. Okay. And that sort of, sort of will open up when people and be like, oh my God, I can now appreciate. I'm so thankful for what I have. I can put my life in context and I can drop away a lot of the basic existential fears of a defense and be essentially at peace with the idea that I will die. But in being at peace with that, I can now open up my life. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So this is a top-down transcendent self-world grip relation that's more cognitive but it's also intuitive at your phenomenological level. It is the way you position yourself in relationship to the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we go into paragliding, which is a life and death. I mean, you're rolling the dice at some level, right? You're putting yourself there and it's unbelievably prime uh, for, for organizing. You know, we have a fundamental, you know, our ancestors were fucking hanging out in trees, falling out of a goddamn tree, right? 
is an archetypal fear, okay? In other words, falling from heights, that's why one of this great phobias is falling from heights. We are primed to experience that as an unbelievably intense bottom-up, mm -hmm. okay? So you have an unbelievably intense bottom-up that's on the edge of danger and mastery. If you can master it, oh my God, isn't that so goddamn cool? We learned how to fly mm -hmm. <laughs> and survive, okay? So you have that whole thing. And you have this potential for an existential awareness of mm -hmm. life and death. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's one of the, um, that's like one of the deeper parts of paragliding is to pull the analogy out of it, to pull the metaphor out of it, the meaning out of it that actually scales to life. Really. It's like yeah. more just life. Right. Right. You know, and you're, and there you are, you're putting your life at risk for something. What is, what is that? What is going on? You have, these are going to activate very deep questions, you know, for people. So mm -hmm. that it's a wonderful uh, existential exercise at multiple levels of your base sensory motor experience of explosion of holy shit. That's a rush. Okay. The awareness or your phenomenological grip on the world, how you make judgments and how you justify what you're doing. I mean, all of that stuff is wrapped up with huge cost benefit shit that makes it very, very intense and real. Well, it's a lot of things, a lot of things wrapped up into why we do that. A lot of things, man. Yeah. You know? And that's just the paragline. I haven't even talked to the social wounds and shadow shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So, so that's your relationship to the paraglide. If you were like on in the world by yourself, and of mm -hmm. course we're not, mm -hmm. right? We are social beings in a social influence matrix inside our heart and in the actual relational world mm -hmm. connecting to the present and the past. Okay. So the social influence matrix means that you're embedded here. Yeah. I have a feeling system that's tracking my current relationship with you. And then I have a feeling system of my history. Mm -hmm. my parents. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, and so I, I'll make an immediate, I'll make an immediate self-disclosure here and see if this resonates with you. Okay. So when I was 19, 1996, 1997, I thought I developed a unified theory of knowledge. Okay. And a core fear of mine is, do I only believe this so that I can prove to my father how smart I am? Mm -hmm. Okay. Does that resonate? Yes. Okay. Okay. Good. So you now can see, oh, Greg dealt with the fucking, is this real? And am I doing this because it's real? Or am I doing it because I feel insecure, fundamentally related to the judgment of my father that I need to slay, this is the Oedipus issue, mm -hmm. okay, and conquer, defy, prove wrong so that my worth my core relational value is taken from an insecure place to an established, competitively strong place. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that notice how I have that structure too. It's just in a different domain. Mm -hmm. My dad's a PhD in history. Okay. So what are, what my talents were, all right. And what my capacities and what my family valued but you see the dynamic is very similar, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So these are the ego dynamics and we can deconstruct them, but they go right to the core of the need that we have to be known and valued and our insecurity that maybe we're not 
And this is a motivation that being unseen can drive, like from my perspective, mm-hmm. this could drive me to just push and push and push and push and push. Like, and when I say push, I mean like more dangerous, lower to the ground, more advanced acrobatics, more advanced gliders. There's a number of different ways to up the ante in paragliding. And I'd say in your case, that has you just become a workaholic and yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll use an example, and I don't mean to be political about this, but I you like to use them because everybody knows him, and everybody Trump. Okay, mm-hmm. what is Trump doing? All right, mm-hmm. Trump's a classic narcissistic algorithm. That's what he is. Is if you love me, I love you back. If you don't, I will assault you and put myself on top. And my whole goal is I'm just going to feed through my psychology. I'm good. You're bad if you're against me. You're good if you're with me. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, a, it's called the blue line, all right? The blue line on the matrix is the vertical power line, mm-hmm. all right? And he had an unbelievably hard-ass father, all right? And he, he structured his entire psychology to prove to his father, based on his economic achievement outcomes, that he would be the best, mm-hmm. okay? In whatever money and business and, and influence and attention, that's what he would be, okay? Now... You might love Trump, you might hate him, whatever, but there it is. And one thing we can know about Trump is that he doesn't know his heart very well. Mm-mm. Okay? He's got all these blinders on. In fact, he's been asked, hey, why don't you ever stop and think? He's like, I would never look inside myself. I might not like what I see. Yeah. That's what he said. That's a direct quote from Trump. <laughs> It's like, I would never look. What if I didn't like what I, I mean, he's, he's so out here that he's like, uh, yeah, actually. So, okay. I guess you're not a follower of Socrates and the examined life then, you know, it's like, okay. So, yeah. so does that get you in trouble? I mean, I mean, I'm a clinician. All right. What, uh, what do I deal with is people who are committed to certain versions of reality that they get in a Buddhist level, they get the parasitic mind gets attached to, yeah. okay. Because there's a part of them that drives to it. They get addicted to it. They have to see themselves a particular way. And then they have all these aversions. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This, all this raises dissonance and fear. And they're terrified about that. And their entire life is forcing the box into this version of reality. There's no flexibility. It's rigid. And then if you get bumped, which almost life always does, and you can't be flexible, okay, fuck, you're in deep trouble, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now put it in a life and death situation where some people are looking up at you and are you going to take risks? And all of a sudden you get your activated notion of, well, shit, here's my chance to rank competently, to mm-hmm. show dominance of the people beneath me and to challenge the ones above me. That's a crystal clear social comparison you were talking about, that fucking competence hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? And that activates that ego shit. And I'm like, where am I on a relational value? I'm a belief you little bastards, but I can show how far above you I am, mm-hmm. right? Or if I'm like, God, these are the best guys, I can challenge the best fuckers, okay? Because mm-hmm. I have to be as absolute best as I can be, so I will push every fucking limit. Well, you know, be fucking yeah. careful if you're a thousand feet above the planet. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how, what you're talking about there, like I feel it like in my hands. 
Like it's my hands that just want to pull on the brake so hard. I just like want to do like uh, dramatic. I want to do dramatic things. Yeah. Well, all, I mean, you know, John Berbeke knows, you know, and I have my own path through this, but you know, as a cog modern cognitive science, it's called embodied cognition, right? Mm -hmm. I actually, so if you're, if you're in that animalistic dominance, you feel it as I just even talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be in your face and grabbing her, yeah. you know, grab the handles, do the thing, fist. You know, yeah. it's just a, a hyper. Uh, that's that hierarchy, man, and we yeah. are prime for that fucking thing, and it will yeah. drive us. And your point, I think you hit on it, really key is, well, fuck, if that's happening, then it filters out some really potentially key, important variables. Like maybe you're not ready to do this, just like performance-wise. Yeah. I mean, mastery-wise, you know, it's yeah. like uh, you ain't ready. And if you're not ready and you're doing something that has unbelievable life and death consequences, well, holy fuck, you, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big uh, error to make. It is. And it's, you know, yeah, that's very true. That's like, what is the physical competence, mastery? Like, what is your skill in reality? Mm -hmm. How does that line up to, to what might be going on? And Furthermore, I think a lot of what's happening or what I'm trying to speak into is it's like paragliding that's out of context. Like there's none of this context that there's none of this context that, okay, first of all, I'm trying to have my core need met. I'm trying to mm -hmm. both prove to myself that I am capable, competent, and right. worthy. And I'm also trying to establish that feeling of my own self-security in social networks and relationships. And I think that without, what I'm seeing is that so much of that goes unseen that paragliding loses its context. And when I say it loses its context, I mean, with those really primary motivations being unseen, people aren't making the meaning out of it that they claim they would want. Like they say that they love it mm -hmm. and that it's like good medicine, but in no way does it heal them. And it only makes them more frustrated when they land out, when they didn't have as long a flight or as high of a flight or as whatever of a flight. Mm -hmm. They don't contextualize it in regards to their family. So my friend nearly killed himself the other night in front of his girlfriend. And I'm like, or in front of his wife, actually. And I'm like, hey, like, you might want to contextualize paragliding instead of contextualizing it in terms of your healing or in terms of your, like, it being medicine for your PTSD. You might want to contextualize your paragliding in terms of your marriage. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I guess there's, I'm still trying to weed through, like, how to best guide this for myself and others mm -hmm. because obviously like it's like a really loud blaring alarm that like there's something totally wrong and I'm not sh totally sure how to fix it or like how to organize it in myself. But I have moments of clarity where I'm like, okay, if you fly with this particular motivation, like in the video, I made the analogy that it's like, it's the, it's the, child that wants to be seen and acknowledged and be the best and be dominant and all these things. Like if that person is holding the brakes of the paraglider, um, 
it can be quite dazzling sometimes. And it is also opens you up to be like, it, it opens me up to die with futility because if I'm really like, if I'm out there and I'm really like centered and I'm, I'm braving the elements and I'm one with the atmosphere and you know, like the lightning strikes and thing and I go in, it's like, it's one thing, but if I'm just like, desperately needing to be seen mm-hmm. and acknowledged and affirmed and I'm showing off and I die like yep. that. Like that's actually my fear. Right. Okay. Dying paragliding yep. is, is <laughs> dying paragliding is like mm-hmm. split into two categories yep. for me. Mm-hmm. It's like one dying like an asshole because you're trying to mm-hmm. show off because you're, yep. you're being an asshole or mm-hmm. like dying because you're a fucking adventurer. Right. Okay. It's so, different. Right. So there's the, there's the, so the way I would describe that, okay, is one dying, when you say dying like an asshole, it means it's channeled through your defensive self, mm-hmm. okay, versus channeled through your true self, all right? So the defensive, so let's go back to paragliding because this is actually uh, uh, the earliest thing that, that sort of, if you go into what's called performance, uh, achievement motivation, okay, achievement is when you're trying to perform on something. All right. And the psychologists that look at this say, well, okay, well, what drives people to achieve? All right. And there are two, and you, basically the most basic motivational system uh, that you can put on this is called a two by two. Okay. Two by two means there's two different dimensions. The first is the basic distinction of motivation, which is approach. Okay. That's a positive energy. You have goal states that you want to achieve. Okay. These are the things and avoid. These are the goal states you want to avoid. Okay, so approach, avoid, that's one. For us, more relevant to what we're talking about, there's mastery, okay, that you are in a participatory relation to whatever you're trying to do and you're trying to find the edge of what you're trying to do it and you are engaged in this for the right reasons because it's a behavioral investment calling for you to achieve mastery and it Mm -hmm. fits with your participatory core identity, Mm. okay? So now I'm going to engage in that, Mm. all right? That feels good. You know, that's, and that's, that's sort of the approach mastery. And of course I don't want to fuck up, but I am, I am there because this is an extension of me. Mm. All right. And what I am, it's what my Mm. fucking calling is. Mm. All right. Then the other is what we've been talking about is performance. Mm -hmm. That's the social judgment that I make of myself or I'm other people make of me for my Secondary needs of social influence, dominance, power, love, freedom, whatever the social motive is, usually tied to some relational need of self or important other. So I'm going to show the image that I have of my father, how smart I am or how tough I am. Or I'm going to show my girlfriend. I'm going to show those little guys down there, the newbies who don't know how to do it, how kick ass I am. Okay? Those are performance motives. All right where the, se- the issue isn't the engagement, it's whether or not you marked on a ranking scale how high you mark so that you feel gratified. Mm. Okay? Now, and those things are, we build a defensive self, which is the idea of, oh shit, we're gonna get judged by other people, it's a competitive world, we may not get our core needs met. Okay? So what we do is we build a false or defensive self to try to meet the other needs of the world, mm-hmm. right? And many people, this is Carl Rogers and several other, Winnicott, other theorists have had this insight. It's like, well, fuck, a lot of people go through their lives with a public f- face out here, okay? That's really a defensive self that you're trying to soak up praise and avoid condemnation and judgment, 
-hmm. And that's their primary motive. But guess what? They feel completely empty inside. They Mm -hmm. feel at their core like assholes. They don't feel real. Mm -hmm. And you can understand why, because actually all of their life is contingent upon what other people think. And they're trying to get the jolt of affirmation in relationship Mm -hmm. to that. So I guess what comes up for me there is like, as a clinician, how do you encourage someone to sift through these motivations and or how do we find our motivations at all? Good. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is right. So this is what is psychotherapy, but psychotherapy is a process where you sort of sit in and all of a sudden you start to get curious about your life and your life story and Mm -hmm. what are the parts of you and what are the parts of you that tick Mm -hmm. and then what's really what what are the real contingencies here okay um that are really driving me Mm -hmm. Uh, that and so now now you start asking the questions and ideally and in fact the whole therapeutic relationship is well i am going to hold an environment for you that's unconditional positive regard why? Because mm. I'm not going to judge any part of you. That's the I, Roger's idea is I will mirror you somebody that simply values you. Whatever's in there, we will value it because I have faith, okay, that there's a core of that's called the organismic valuing process that will, if it's given the right context, find the way to be authentic and to be harmonized in the relational world. That's at mm. least the, that's the hope, Okay. But you go to therapy to learn the ways in which you were traumatized and wounded, both little T traumas, big T traumas, fantasies, wishes, wishes that weren't fulfilled, jolts of, of, of enjoyment, okay? And then how did those things structure your then need to be a particular way, create a judgmental self of, oh my God, to be okay, to be loved, to be powerful, I have to be this way, regardless mm-hmm. of what I actually am, okay? Mm-hmm. And so then you start to tell the stories of the various traumas and injuries and fantasies. And with that, you start to realize, oh, that drove that and that part of me. And wait a minute, actually, that is part of me. That was whatever that organismic valuing process is, you know, you know, like eventually it's like, this is not about my fucking ego. I built a unified theory simply because I know it, I feel it, and I am it. <laughs> you know, it just is not, not, I don't give a fuck about what anybody else thinks. <laughs> it's done with that. Okay. And it's still there. It's like, oh, okay. Well, that's a different kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, um, I think that there's a lot of resistance to taking off the mask the mask that is the defensive motivations. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ego. There's a lot of resistance to trying our best to face our real motivations because um, this sport is, I don't know, I'd probably say some kind, something on the order of like 95% men. Mm-hmm. Um. Right. And, and, and keep in mind that, look, think about what we have to do in psychotherapy to set that up. First off, men rarely come into psychotherapy, okay, mm-hmm. if we're talking about men, all right? The, the image status dynamic in men is unbelievably huge, all right? And I'll tell you, it takes a hell of a lot of work to get to a place where somebody's even going to start to look at themselves and own themselves this way, all right? Mm-hmm. So 
be aware that you're, you, it would be hard as a paraglider to set it up and ensure that everyone's going <laughs> to, you know, you want to set the context, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, well, okay, but, you know, these things, these structures are built across a lifetime. People have, or they're totally organized. They may come to paragliding because it's a defense, right? Um, and good luck. You know, I mean, we can have these ideas, but it's not like you would then be in a position to be like, oh, I know how to help people undo that and then create the right context instantaneously. Because Yeah, so it's an uphill battle. It's an yeah, uphill it's an battle. Uphill it's, it's a big, it's it's like a big a, ask. It's, it's a, a big, big ask. Right. And so, like, we don't know. How, I t- it takes people to get the goddamn doctor to have some sense of how the hell to do it in a therapy room. You know? <laughs> well, I'm not going to get a doctorate. I'm definitely not going to get a doctorate. But I do no. feel mm-hmm. called. I do feel called to, like, at least start the conversation, you know? And that video, I, amen, you, that, video that you saw on YouTube, like, uh, the vulnerability that I felt uploading that and, like, mm-hmm. the uh, – the amount of time that it took to muster the courage to have that kind of conversation to switch from, Hey, I'm a professional paraglide pilot and I'm really good and check me out. This is how good I am. I will teach you how to do it. That's how good I am to, Hey, I might be paragliding to uh, cover up some shit and you might be too. So, um, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm so surprised that those two videos that I've made, the philosophy of paragliding and, the other one before you kill yourself paragliding. Um, they're my most viewed videos just instantly. So I, listen, man, I, 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 first off, you took courage, but, it, but it was authentic and it was brilliant and beautiful. And so good mm-hmm. to have an athletic man stand up. And, and all I'm here to tell you people is this is how we're fucking built. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's like, you know, you're just dawning on you for those of us that live in the psychology world. It's like, uh, you're just dawning on yourself, how you're built. So yeah. if you don't think you have a public face, you just aren't paying attention. That's uh-huh. how defended your ass is. That's uh-huh. not like a debate. <laughs> that's like, I just, I know you exactly about where you are. If you're like, oh, that's not me. It's like, oh, well, not only is it not you, you know, we're not even at a place to talk about it being you. That's how much it is. Like, oh, yeah. That's right. These, like you said, these things are built on a lifetime and that's right. they are built on a lifetime, an unexamined lifetime. And then you turn 30 you crash your paraglider and it, you know, if you're lucky, the light turns on and you're like, oh, maybe there's some cobwebs here and there's some, some looking that we got to do. And that's, you know, and I, I think that, I guess one of my deepest hopes and or fantasies was, is that I could use paragliding as an analogy for the examined life, that you could look at your motivations in paragliding and that would actually improve your relationship with your wife and your family, your work, your worth, yourself, all of these things. I think that that is, um, you know, one of my, one I, of my I think it's a beautiful motivations thing. there. Yeah, and, and I think you're, you're, you know, listen, you have a clearly a philosophical bent. You have lots of good insights. You're unbelievably intense on this. You can self-reflect. Uh, you're a guy that's willing to come out and say this shit. You're doing it, man. That's exactly, you know, um, that's you're you're entering into the four-way of of waking up. And all I'll say is that, you know, you're absolutely right. And from where I'm sitting, this isn't really about paragliding. Mm-hmm. Okay. This yeah. is about the human fucking condition. It all is. right. This is the entire globe. And whether you're hiding in your room or whether you're jumping off a goddamn plane, chances are it's actually the same inverse of the exact same fucking dynamics. Yeah. Okay. We all have to come to terms with our heart, our head, our public image how we've been construed a particular way. And if we're going to actually undo it and be authentic with ourselves and each other, these are the processes. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so that's like authentic paragliding. What what might authentic paragliding look like? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big question. What what if I was authentically paragliding? What would my motivations look like? What would my practice look like? I've been ruminating on this on this uh, thing. I've been kind of writing about it, and I want to make a video called the paragliding prayer, which. Uh, aviation in general is very procedural. Uh, if you're going to get into a plane, uh, you have mandated a certain set of procedures. Yep. And paragliding, we don't have that. Paragliding, we are the cowboys of the sky, and we can pretty much do whatever we want. But mm-hmm. I'm not so interested in creating a checklist for your harness and your buckles and thing. I actually want to create some kind of checklist that imbues as much meaning, reverence, and presence into your paragliding as possible before you launch. So that if you launch off the mountain hoping to fly seven hours and you fly seven minutes, that you're not just a confused, wrecked ball of emotion and frustration, but rather that you're actually actively trying to take the meaning that the universe has given you on that day and you're trying to integrate it into yourself with humility. And... This is a, I think it's a, the more I think about it, it's actually not like something that I write for people. It's actually an activity where I use uh, use an example and encourage people to write their own paragliding prayer so that they can imbue as much meaning into it as they can and as they will. Um, That's right. That's Because right. it is, it, it's such a transformational sport. And so, I, I think I'd love to come around here on what is the, you know, on my last talk with Verveke, he just mentioned in passing something, uh, just the transformational power of risk. Mm-hmm. And so it, it piqued my interest, but as you know, with Verveke, he drops so many bombs of wisdom just in such rapid succession that you got to be like hot on your feet. And so that one was one that passed me by. So I would love to hear just like psychologically the transformational power of risk. I want to, I would love to understand both the authentic and the defensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about then. All right. So when Verveke was talking about the transformational uh, power of risk, what did you hear? or What did you into it? We can start there and then maybe elaborate on uh, what may happen to people around risk. And we talk about trauma and risk, uh, risk that's in, taken uh, like with control, risk that happens to people out of their control, and then the meaning making that happens after. Okay, so these are all going to be the parts of it. And then if it's aligned right, all right, the parts are aligned right, then it's be a positive growth promoting transformation generally. But let's, so when you heard Verbeke say that, and it sort of passed you by, what did you wonder, what came to mind in relationship to maybe what was going on? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the place that it took me is just to my own life and how it's been transformed through risk. And mm-hmm. um, essentially my, you know, when I was 12, I did my first backflip on skis. Mm-hmm. And there's this like, there's this incredible experience of being afraid of something yet knowing or at least believing that you can do it. And then mustering the courage to actually meddle that belief against reality. 
brilliant. And there's a, there's a, there's such a time bound nature to it in skiing. Mm -hmm. So in skiing, it's like, I'm afraid of it. I'm going at the jump. Am I going to do it? Am I going to do it? Three, two, one, you get your chance right there. If you don't do it off of the takeoff of the jump, then you're not going to do it. So there's this like acute moment for that. And on the other side of that, it's so clear, crash or land. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, the spectrum of how well you perform that in the air. This mm -hmm. was the first sport that really captured me. Mm -hmm. And it was this, I don't know, it's almost like a, I don't know, it, it, it felt like all of life just condensed, all of growth condensed. It's like, do you believe you can? Mm -hmm. Is it physically possible in the, in the real world? And then let's see it. Totally. And then it's like crash or land. And then I get into high lining, which takes that crash or land thing and it extends mm -hmm. it out over an hour. Instead of an acute instant, you have to mm. balance and maintain your mental state and your balance for an hour at a time. And then in paragliding, it's like it might be seven hours at a time that you have to do this. So I think that initially it was a very acute thing. It was like crash or land. Mm -hmm. And then as I've gotten older, it seems like it's gotten mm -hmm. a lot longer. Mm -hmm. But I see mm -hmm. this, the, the ways in which the risk itself has been transformational mm -hmm. because it's something, I don't know, it's like, um, I mean, I can see it as my own self-worth. I can mm -hmm. see both the, as we talk about this, I can see the 19-year-old self mm -hmm. who was both pleased at his own performance and mm -hmm. also pleased that his friends and peers and onlookers were like holy shit right right yeah so, mm -hmm. and they let's face it they overlap but you can but you can see okay so so right they overlap so it's not like but you can feel the energy all right so you have if we were just going to stay with the humanistic model because i think is but you have this organismic growth process mm -hmm. okay that's seeking its potential all right at some level so it has this intuition that it has this potential and then it faces an existential crisis between existential anxiety. Existential anxiety is I'm going to try something, bad shit's going to happen, so you want to avoid. Okay? Uh -huh. Or existential regret, which means, oh, my God, because I'm afraid, then I'm not going to do it, and I'm going to constrain myself mm. okay, to avoid the bad shit from happening. Mm -hmm. When you get fearful, okay, then you, and then you say, so I say, oh, you know, for me, I'm not a huge risk taker, but I remember, you know, like if I'm in high school, I'm going to go ask this girl out. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then I have, well, I have the idea. She might say yes. Okay. But she then may say no. All right. Crash or land. Okay. Crash or land. Exactly. I go over there. And since I got crashed a couple of times, I got hurt early. You know, yeah. 15, 16, first four girls I asked out. No. Okay. So I crashed. I know. And then all of a sudden it was like, nope, I'm not doing that anymore. Fuck that. Yeah. Okay? So, so what happened in that instance is you get injured, then you restrain, and then you're like, oh, I don't feel competent. Okay. And then you carry that insecurity with you. Mm -hmm. So you then are, and then you're sort of like, then you're defensive and then you're stunted. God, I had so much more fucking potential. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's one growth path. All right. Where you get hurt a little bit and then you restrain and then you get stuck with existential regret. Mm. All right. Now let's talk about what happens when it goes well. 
and you confront your existential anxiety, you take the risk of the possible damage, but you hit where you are. The girl says, yes, you're laying the fucking skis, right? And then you explode out into that potential. You feel the mastery of it. You feel your expanding of your horizons and you feel the growth. You feel the growth that brings you alive. Mm. The investment system then just expands. You have just pressed the chaos boundary out and mm. expanded what you are. Mm. I can be bigger. You know, fuck yeah. You know, and, and there's, a, there's a true felt sense of that. There's also then the social dynamic. It's all tied up. It is quasi-separable, but overlapping. Okay. So that's the performance dynamic, the mastery dynamic. And then when that speaks to your heart, when you're like in flow with that, then that feels that true self is in harmony, that participatory harmony with investing in the world and growing in the world and increasing mastery and pushing the fucking edge. That's what, you know, we're built to feel super fucking alive when that happens. Mm. So you come overcome risk and achieve what, you know, super hard to achieve and risk yourself and everybody else is watching. That's the pinnacle of both act of, ach uh, of achievement motivation, mastery, and of course, then you're authentically loved for it. You won the fucking Super Bowl, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, won the paragliding. I'm the best in the fucking, I mean, that's, yeah, that's why people come off of that thing and it's just, you know, it's talking that dopamine's racing through that thing. It's just like, Jesus, is this what it means to be alive? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And that's where, we both find ourselves and can lose ourselves, it seems, mm -hmm. because that what you're talking about is a very powerful drug. That's really good medicine. That's really good medicine to feel like I have achieved something, that I've earned something, that, I've, that I am masterful, that I have mitigated my risks, that I have acknowledged my vulnerability and still with courage stepped into the sky. I have faced it and I have made investments in skill. I have made decisions and the effect of these is this feeling. It's an emotional response and it's an emotional response that is hard to compare in other... It's hard to get. It's, it's not an easy thing to get. And so when we get it, mm -hmm. that's, uh, you know, it's, it's quite, you know, like, I don't know, is it, is it heroin? I think that's, I think that's probably heroinish. It's, I think it's I mean, and, you know, that we are built to want that. Okay. So that, yeah. I mean, that is, that's what you seek. I mean, those are the moments, you know, of success. I mean, that's what we're built into finding mm -hmm. status, success, mastery, success, overcoming what you are, growth success. I mean, those are, uh, moments of champions right? yeah and i want to i guess what i'm trying to contextualize is like i still want to honor the part of myself that wants that and earns that and deserves that mm -hmm. amen right right I, it's like that's a beautiful thing that's mm -hmm. like i want the authentic part of myself to be the person pulling the strings on the glider mm -hmm. and you know, like in my video, I said that I didn't want to shame the part of me that had some kind of defensive compensation of my worth in paragliding. It wasn't that I needed to shame it or kill it or get rid of it, but I just want to keep it in the back seat from pulling the strings. Because if it pulls the strings, like, like I don't want to die with that person flying. Mm -hmm. The authentic me, the, the really present, reverent, grateful, um, 
part of me that feels worthy and doesn't need to do it because I got to like, you know, show my dad what I'm capable of. I don't want to die flying as that character. Right. And so, yeah, I guess most of it, like as we talk about it, most of it is me trying to acknowledge both of these characters that are trying to fight tug of war over who gets to fly the paraglider. Right. And how to acknowledge the defensive and like soothe him Mm -hmm. so that he'll just sleep in the back seat and, and gladly come along for the ride while the adult flies the paraglider. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah. So it's good. It's a big question, right? Right. And then, and so now you're on the path of growth. You're recognizing these two characters, right? That's the first thing, awareness, acceptance mm. that you're going to have them. I'll tell you that they do overlap some, but you can, you can with shining the flashlight, you can say, oh, okay. You know? Mm. So for, you know, I'll, I'll bring it back to me. You know, I used to be on, I'm still in on listservs all the time. Okay. But when I was younger, you know, in my mid twenties, I'd be on a listserv, you know, I'm in this academic world. Okay. So you're in a listserv, 200 academics. I'm a little, I'm a postdoc, you know, I start posting shit. And then as soon as somebody criticizes me, okay, when I'm in that place, it's like, oh shit. All right, here we go. I'm going to bring, I'm bringing it, man. I'm going to study this. I'm going to research this. I'm going to analyze your ass. I'm going to checkmate your ass, you know, (laughs) know? or if he gets me, then it's like, okay, I'm going to defend and blah, blah, blah. This is, it's this game I am fucking playing. All right. Uh-huh. Who's who can justify? You know, I mean, now I'm on a list of somebody criticized my ass. I'm, I don't give a fuck. I'm, <laughs> I'm out of there. You know, I was like, whatever, dude, you know, <laughs> maturation, like, you believe whatever the hell you want. I don't care. You know, yeah. it's like, right. So, right. Exactly. You see that. So, so you can look back at me and be like, Oh, Greg was really moving through his other ego then, uh-huh. you know? And when you're 15 and I was 25 here, it's growing. And when you're 50, you get to, you know, I, it, the d- developmental process allows you, if you, I believe if you're aware of it, and it's actually, it's also, there's a natural element here that allows you to separate, that allows you to reconcile. If you can overcome some of the traumas, you know, I went through the, some therapeutic processes where I hadn't done it at that point, what my dad meant to me and all that, you know, and I love my dad, by the way, for, you know, for clarity. I mean, you have a good relationship, but his judgment of me and my intellect, that was part of my ego. Okay. So so what I'm saying is I think it's a, a, a lifelong journey and mm-hmm. it's not done perfectly. Um, mm-hmm. But so it's not like a simple, easy problem for everybody to just oh, do yes. this checklist and now you're clean. I mean, uh-huh. that's it, right. Uh-huh. But it, it is, these are the principles and processes and this is a frame for understanding. It, and mm-hmm. now you can shine the flashlight on your yes. unique journey and then see what it is that's more true you and let more defensive you and channel that stuff to more true you. Mm, I love that. I love that. And I love what you said about it being a lifelong journey. I've, I've, uh, the words that I've used are paragliding as a practice. Mm-hmm. It's just a practice. It's like, it's, it's a flashlight. It's one of the flashlights. Mm-hmm. It's a tool for transformation. It's not a, it's not a just add water. Right. And this is a, this is a, such a general principle. I'll say it here. People want their mental health problems to be well-defined problems that have little checklist recipes, take a pill, do these five things, right? The vast majority of the fucking time, they're ill-defined, dynamic, complex problems. Mm-hmm. 
okay? Which means by definition, if they were simple little linear problems, you'd fix them and blah, blah, blah. The nature of them is that mm. they're multifaceted, developmental, contextual, back and forth, okay? Mm. That the growth journey, that's a journey, not a destination. It's not that simple. You say, you locate yourself. That's why it's always what become aware and then accept. That's why my, uh, those are the first two things. People are always like, well, I want to fix this. I want to get rid of this. I want to get to the end. It's like, stop. <laughs> Okay, you're already trying to checklist this thing, and good luck. You know, if, yeah. if it was checklist, they would have, you know, it would have been. A, it's a different kind of problem. Yeah. Okay? So it's a journey problem. It's a process problem. It's engagement. It's lifelong. It's it's all that stuff. These are the kinds of problems. Virtually all mental serious, you know, significant, meaningful mental health dynamics are. Yeah, that's really interesting. We do have just in our culture at large, we have an addiction seemingly addiction to fixing mm -hmm. to fixing we have um we have to fix everything mm -hmm. and then you know the question that we have been so habituated to is how do we get other people to do <laughs> blank <laughs> right all right uh, okay <laughs> i i am i am clearly healed as a paraglide pilot and my true authentic self i just wear this helmet and i it channels my authentic self but how do we get other paraglide pilots to realize yeah no the you know the first episode that i recorded with verveki is called the real revolution it's a it's more axiomatic revolution than it is the french revolution it's not political it's a revolution of embodiment mm -hmm. And embodiment is not a decision. It is a practice. Amen. Okay, Greg. Well, I'm glad you failed me. I was hoping you'd have some really fast answers, uh, some, hard, some hard rules, some hard checklist. I came here for a checklist. No checklist? Damn it. No checklist, man. Damn it. Sorry. No, I think that's really helpful, though, is just understanding that the problem is not something to be fixed it's the problem is in the beginning it's something to be seen it's something to be with it's something to just be with to look at to like why are you trying to surgically remove this part of yourself and throw it out the window and how can you just get it to sit quietly in the back seat yep mm, yeah i like this yep i like this so awareness, acceptance, and change, active change. So I'm always like, uh, active change is one third of it and it comes last. <laughs> I love that. Awareness. awareness. Awareness, acceptance, active change. So it's three A's. Uh -huh. okay? And two thirds of the, of the dynamics are awareness and acceptance. And, and of course, everyone comes into my clinic room wanting active change right now. You know, and... and and that's uh, and indeed the psychopharmacology, you know, not to get down on them, but our whole model of medicine and doctoring and everything else is just, oh, I'm here to efficiently make you better. And it's my job as your doctor. So we uh -huh. create this model that there are these quick fixes or so you take these steps and you do this. And it's just it's trying to create a well-defined solution to actually completely ill-defined problems. I mean, people are coming in. Their whole system's all complicated. Okay. I mean, it's like trying to fix pollution. You know, it's like, oh, solve the problem of pollution. Yeah, actually, <laughs> pollution is all these six out of the things. What the hell do you actually mean? And then how are you going to live? And then what can you do about it, right? And it's like, mm -hmm. well, your mind's all polluted. Well, let's at least understand what the hell it is and sit with it, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and trust me, it's going to be a little polluted. That's the nature of living. And now maybe we can figure out how to live more cleanly. 
Mm. Yeah, I love this. This has been a great conversation and I think it has reinforced my intuition. My intuition is that this is not something that you can take a pill for. Although if you do have a pill for that, then you let me know the paragl- the paragliding pill. Maybe I should stop focusing on the paragliding prayer and start exploring the paragliding pill. <laughs> so I'll, I'll put my I'll put my vote for the prayer. But okay. Uh, yeah, so I think my intuition all along was that paragliding is a tool. And if you bring your own placebo to it, if you bring your awareness, your acceptance, your introspection, your willingness to take the mask off and really look inside of you, then the paragliding is the tool and the placebo is what you bring. The paragliding is the pill, it's the medicine. But if you bring the placebo, if you make yourself ripe for healing, if you make yourself willing to look inside, that's when it really can have healing power. And if you're unwilling to look, if you're addicted to the defensive mask, if you only stay there, then you're likely to take the pill as abuse, as drug abuse. You'll just take it and take it and take it and you'll build up a tolerance to it. You'll build up a tolerance to the excitement, to the thrill, to the risk, to the social reward. And that can lead you to dying like an asshole, as I've referred to it. Having your defensive self pull the string so that you're trying to compensate, you're trying to overcompensate, you're trying to make yourself worthy by paragliding to other people or to yourself. And that is a really dangerous rabbit to chase. Yeah. Brilliantly so. Yeah. I want to be filled up by paragliding, Greg. I want to, you know, it's like, honestly, it is, it's, it's life because I have had a, I'm coming out of the darkest winter of my life and I'm two and a half years from a divorce that I was with her for nine years before that. And so, There's um, just like to boil all it down to just like jump way deep into it. I've, I've come to the epiphany that sexual liberation is a feeling. Mm-hmm. The gratitude, the, the, the resolve, the resolve, like I have a, my best friend, Daniel, he is, he is so resolute in his marriage. He is uncertain about his needs, his desires, his fantasies. He is, you know, like there's nothing that's really off the table, but like he has a resolution in his marriage that is, I mean, I would, uh, the word that comes to me is necessary. And it's like grounding and it really like, it really like contextualizes the rest of everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want this, I mean, I want this feeling of sexual liberation. I want this feeling of like relational liberation that my like mm-hmm. relationships don't feel like they entrap me, mm-hmm. that they feel like they feed me. 
And I want my relationship to paragliding to be the same way that it feeds me, it fills me up, that I create meaning from it, that I can create some semblance of identity that, you know, all these different things that I am trying, like these building blocks for myself that I'm trying to create bricks of using the mud of paragliding. Mm. And I, I see around me, not that I'm doing it right and they're doing it wrong, but it's like, there's ways that I've seen in myself and I see around me that people are trying to build with just the mud. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to stack up the mud of paragliding. They're just like trying to add flight hours, but they're actually not putting it into a brick so that they can build up themselves. They're actually not thinking about building anything. They're just kind of eating. They're just eating, Mm -hmm. eating, 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 and they have no metabolism. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not being digested. It's not turning into something that is growing and building. And so and I don't want to die overeating. I don't want to just die shoveling it into my face. And I think at, at the end of the day, Greg, as I say this out loud, I think one of the things that I need is to be able to justify this level of risk while I feel like I have a gift to give to the world that if I die, I lose the opportunity to give. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I feel like I would be a great father. So I feel like that's part of my future. I feel like I'm a great, I'd be a great partner and a great friend and a, uh, a public intellectual and a, um, you know, somebody to spar with and, and to have fun with and to create meaning and to bring joy. And there's like all these gifts that I have that I want to give that at some point in my maturation, I look at my paraglide and, and I see it as a, as vulnerability for my entire thing. And at the same time, the other side of the scale is that Mm -hmm. this thing feeds me, this thing makes me, this thing is like, like my whole life has been based on these like really dangerous things that I have developed a way to Mm -hmm. keep myself safe. I mean, I, I have been relatively uninjured my entire career, knock Mm -hmm. on wood and thank God. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I'm, I'm balancing this like justification in myself that like, okay, I love to do this, but if I don't make it really fucking work, then Hmm. I can't take this risk, man. Like Mm -hmm. I cannot take this risk. Mm -hmm. And like, I got to live my, my full life. But if I'm just out there, just trying to eat processed Mm -hmm. sugar in the form of paragliding, that's just going to give me these little spikes and it's not building my my spiritual body. It's not building me up as a man and building me up into maturation and, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a, a level of personhood that I really desire, then I can't, I can't justify it. So, mm-hmm. so I am, there is a big part of this inquiry. That's just me trying to justify my own risk taking well, because I used, <laughs> I used to justify it in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And I used to, I mean, realistically, the younger version of myself didn't have to justify it at all. People would see it and be like, holy shit, what? That's enough justification right there. How do you do that? And I'm like, I I feel, you know, like, yeah, got it. So, so now as I get a little bit older, I'm like having to justify these things a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And I want to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to stop. And I also am getting more comfortable with the reality that I could stop. I could give mm-hmm. my gift. I could feel fulfilled in other ways that aren't so uh, risky. And I also, the other side of that is that I want to 
convince myself that if I'm really there, if I'm really authentic, that I can mitigate the risk in a reasonable way. Just like thousands and thousands of paraglide pilots who have lived entire careers without getting mm -hmm. hurt by making good decisions and flying within their realm of competence. So yeah, there's a Brilliant. Hold. Yep. So, okay. A couple of things here to, uh, that I'll offer. So, so now this level is the question of authentic justification versus rationalizing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now what you're aware of is, oh, fuck, am I rationalizing this in a particular way? Meaning that there are these other needs and I'm sort of having forcing it a particular th way, or is this an authentic alignment with my core self? And you're wondering about that. And that's great to wonder about. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, and so now you're seeing, oh, there's this justifying mind I have. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> no shit. <Yep. laughs> that's, that's part of the whole dynamic we live with. All right. Yep. And then it's, and it can be a rationalizing defensive bullshit mind. And it actually can be good at giving authentic reasons. And it's not always clear. And yeah. you just have to wonder about that. So your awareness of that's great. Okay. The second thing I'll say is that be aware also. That while we want to be our true selves, okay, and we have all of these potentials, we, uh, we have one self to live, and life will constrain those selves. Of course. Obviously. Okay. So we make sacrifices. Mm -hmm. um, good luck on living every one of your true self fantasy lives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sometimes you're like, oh, all right, yeah, yeah I'm going to constrain this part of me. I'm going to compromise here. I'm going to bullshit this with some of my friends because it doesn't feel authentic, but what other option do I have? I'm constrained here in a particular way. You know? So there are real life adaptive constraints uh, that don't always align. And if it's always like, oh, I'm just going to do my organismic valuing process. Well, the long-term consequences of that don't always work out so great. Yeah. So, uh, so, there are, so there's all this shit. That's why it's so goddamn complicated is a lot and that's why every path is a journey and navigating mm -hmm. and doing the best uh, for the short and long-term and ultimate arc of your life in relation. Mm -hmm. that's, and that's, with, and some of you are going to have some regrets and some, you know, girls say no and shit happens, yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, that's, but that's the living the good life is, is actually engaging in all of that. It's the yeah. process and the journey of engaging in all that. Yeah, it's the far side of taking your mask off. Yeah. So I guess maybe that is maybe that is an actionable thing that is kind of like clarifying as to direction here for me is um I like the two first steps of the call memo. It's the curiosity, it's the it's the awareness and then it's the acceptance. Mm -hmm. The awareness and the acceptance are both on the far side of taking your mask off. They are both on the far side of losing face. Right? I don't know if the video that you watched explained that I watched a girl crash the other night. Yep. I rushed down to her. And the yep. first thing she does is she tries to save face. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was, I almost had like an allergic reaction to that. Right. Well, be aware when people get traumatized, four things can happen to them. Okay. Um, they'll freeze. They'll freak out and get angry and rageful. Uh, they'll run away and they'll get fawning. Okay. Fawning is, oh my God, I didn't mean this to happen. I'm okay. No problem. All mm -hmm. right. So it can be, uh, I did hear that. And I just want you, that's an, that people are in quasi shock and they regress. So this is a suppressive, uh, a submissive defensive 
regression automatic where you're just like, uh -huh. I'm okay, I'm okay, okay? Uh -huh. When actually your fucking leg might be broken in half, right? right? Yeah. All right? So what I would, as a clinician, what I would tell you is what I would do if I was there, all right, is immediately assess whether or not she's in shock and uh -huh. whether the fawning behavior is a basically a regression program huh. that she's in the midst of or whether she's actually, whether she actually is conscious about what she's doing and this is indicative of a public self-image management mm. way of being. So clinically, you'd have to make a distinction between those two because I treat her differently in those ways. Uh, well, sense. thank you. I appreciate that uh, reflection on my clinical self. And I think, that, <laughs> I think that there was something there that as you say that, I kind of, I think about how I assessed her. I, I, I've known her. Mm -hmm. And so I think I have just a little bit of background. And I also was observing her that day. And so there was a bit that of frustration. There was a bit of like, I could feel that she was trying to save face in the landing zone. She was trying to save face with her frustration that she was. So you had the context of all. I did. I did. Yeah, gotcha. I had some context there. So anyway, that was the thought that popped into my head that if I were just guiding you, it'd say, well, wonder about this. But yes, then that would make uh -huh. sense if you had the whole context. See, because like any skill, you know, you learn some stuff and you're like, oh, wait. And it's like, well, if you have the right context and you tie it all together, that could be exactly the pattern, right? Uh -huh. But sometimes what looks initially like the pattern turns out to be something different. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. Well, dude, this has been really good, Greg. This has been really good. I think that I'm feeling some kind of like, uh, you know, get in where I fit in. I feel like as I bridge the podcast with the paragliding and speak directly mm. to the paragliding community, I actually have a lot more effect. Great. And so I really appreciate. I love that, by the way, because this is, I mean, I'm stepping outside the academy because the academy is this damn cloistered thing. They're also, they're all blue churched anyway. All yeah. right. So the idea that you are connecting to some of us and some of us are academics like me and John are starting to step outside. And then if we can actually create a beeline into various communities, yes. right? Through like you into paragliding uh, and build that bridge. That's, that's ultimately where the goddamn change of the 21st century has to happen. So that's super I exciting. love that. I love that. And I think that the paragliding community globally is incredibly potent. We are affluent. We are intelligent. We are risk-taking. We are deep thinkers, deeply observant. We're a very potent community. And so I'm... Uh, I, I uh, that makes sense. You be right on the top leading edge of culture out there. That's right, baby. <laughs> Fucking a. That's, that's so right. great. That's a wonderful conduit. Then that that so keep doing that. It's a beautiful place for you to be. Great. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. Let's do Absolutely. it again soon. I'll talk to you in four weeks or something. You know where to find me. <laughs> I know, buddy. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. All right, man. Love you, Greg. See you later, man. Take care. Okay, you guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to Dr. Greg for being on the show. Is pretty much as many times as I uh, as we can connect. We enjoy each other's presence and our conversations. And so he's put me onto his TOK list, the talk list. That's the theory of knowledge list. It's a group of us who are philosophers and psychologists and clinicians and uh, deep thinkers who um, every Monday we meet and we listen to a lecture by someone who gets invited to the group and then we have a round table and we shoot the shit. It's really great. So I'm glad to be a part of Greg's group and I'm uh, super grateful for our relationship and his mentorship. So really appreciate him coming on. So 
Like I said in the beginning, thanks so much for being here. If you want to support this show using money as a tool for the creation of this kind of content, then paypal.me slash in the air. There's a recurring payment option coming on airyintheair.com right around the corner, so I'll let you know when that's live. But in the meantime, maybe just kick me a couple bucks, drop a coin in my hat. Thanks so much. Love you guys. See you in the next episode. Peace. Pleasure.